Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to a very special episode of Monoreal Radio. Jackie and I are very excited to introduce you to another one of our guests this week, writer and director of the documentary, Frank and Ollie, Ted Thomas. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Monoreal Radio. Thank you. Good to be with you. So I first have to ask you, what was it like for you as a child growing up in that house where I'm assuming it was filled with Disney, because to me, that kind of seems like the dream if you're a kid. Well, you know, we, we made a whole nother movie about that. It's called Growing Up With Nine Old Men, and that uh, came out on a Blu-ray release of Peter Pan a few years ago. But you can still get a, a look at it, and it'll give you an idea of, of not only what my childhood was like, but uh, kids of some of the other nine old men as well. But to answer your question, it's it's hard for some people to believe, but uh, there wasn't that much Disney in our house when I was growing up. Uh, yeah, there were um, some dye transfer prints from Pinocchio and a couple of maquettes from Snow White or uh, sitting around, but it wasn't uh, like decked out with Disney art you know, all the way around. My father was a working artist. Uh, our next door neighbor, Ollie Johnston, was a working artist. And, you know, we got to uh, know them as artists, but we knew them much better as Uncle Ollie and, and Dad. You know, they were great, funny men to be around who were into all sorts of things, you know, in addition to art. You know, my father loved to do the uh, Saturday Review cross-stick, crossword puzzle and he loved to watch football, and he loved opera, and he liked to take us to the Natural History Museum on Saturday mornings, and just loved the high Sierra mountains, you know, fly fishing and, and taking us up there for summer vacation. So both these guys were into all sorts of things, just making life bigger, if you will. So even though there wasn't a lot of Disney represented in your home, did you have a favorite Disney character growing up, and was it one of your father's? Well, you know, this has changed over time. I think that when I was much younger, I uh, really liked Snow White and Pinocchio a lot. And then uh, as I got a little bit older, then I liked Captain Hook, which my father had done. And then yeah, I really liked uh, Baloo out of uh, the Jungle Book, which again was uh, a character that my father and, and Ollie sort of traded on and off with. And, uh, you know, when they did these films, uh, it wasn't always clear to us what they were working on. You know, if, if Frank would come home from work and he'd tell us stories of what happened that day at the studio, there would be all sorts of anecdotes about funny things or unusual things that people did or stories that they had. But he wouldn't necessarily talk about the scenes that he personally was working on. So we might not know until the picture came out that, that we, he'd say, how, how did you like it? And I say, oh, I thought it was great. And I like this and I like that. And by the way, what did you do? You know, <laughs> so, and he'd say, well, I worked on, uh, you know, I worked on that scene where a lady and the tramp eat spaghetti, you know, I worked on that. Or, you know, he'd say, uh, oh, well, you know, when Baloo 
has to tell Mowgli that he has to go back to the man village. I worked on that. And then we would move on, you know, because at that time, when a picture came out, attention might be called to scenes like that. But it really took the fullness of time to realize how special and what emotional high points those scenes were, you know. And it's really as an adult that I came to appreciate more and more the special talents that Frank and Ollie had and how their very unusual friendship sort of upped each other's game, you know. I started working at the studio summer after I graduated from high school, so summer of 1969. And uh, there was a program at that time that if your parent had put in X number of years at the studio, then their child was eligible for a summer job. And the summer jobs were basically working in the mailroom or uh, working in accounting or uh, learning to give tours or helping out in PR, things of that nature. So um, I first worked in the mailroom and then later on I worked in this department called Art Props. And the reason why I'm, I'm telling you this is because uh, Frank and Ollie were decent enough. I was still living at home at the time, but they were decent enough to modify their hours. Uh, they were off the clock, you know, so they could go. The, the normal work day at the studio at that time was 8 to 5. And I had to punch a clock by 8.05 or I'd get docked, you know. And I punched out at 5 o'clock, time clock. And uh, so Frank and Ollie um, would let me carpool with them. So we'd ride in together and we'd ride home together. And that's when I really began to realize the sort of secret sauce of their relationship, that they had uh, half an hour in the morning and a half an hour in the evening at the end of the day to basically talk about what they were going to work on. And then on the way home, what they had worked on. And it, it's sort of like two actors who are working on scenes, filming something all day long, and they get to sort of unwind and think about, well, how did this go today? How, how could we have done it better? What do you want to do tomorrow? What do you think the way is to approach such and such? You know, and this would be everything from talking about their own scenes to talking about uh, the politics of how to sort of get the result that they felt strongly about in a picture. Because, you know, it, it's no different than any other film. The, the films that are being made today, uh, anybody working on them has strong opinions and hopes that their input will be taken. And so, you know, they'd have conversations about how they might be able to uh, get on the good side of Wooly Reitherman or convince him to do something their way. Or, gee, he's, he's promoting a song that we sure hope he doesn't fall in love with because we don't like it, you know, things like that. You mentioned before that, you know, sometimes your father would be talking about something he was working on, but obviously you haven't seen the film yet, so it's out of context. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself maybe inserted into one of the scenes or something you had said or something, you know, like maybe an inside joke or something that you had with him? Did you ever get to see yourself on the screen in that way? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh... He told me that there was a scene that he worked on in Robin Hood where uh, Prince John is having a nightmare while he's sleeping. And he sort of rubs his feet together back and forth like that. And uh, when I saw it, 
I said, hey, that's an interesting little bit of business you, you worked out there. And he said, oh, well, yeah, I got it from you. You used to do it when you were a baby and you would sleep. You'd rub your feet together like that. So I sort of filed it away until I, I found a good chance to use it. So, <laughs> Which character that he worked on do you think is the most like him while we're on the topic of drawing personal influence? I mean, in terms of a personal appearance or just a behavior? Either. Yeah, either of them. Well, you know, in terms of personal appearance, probably Captain Hook, you know, has the most personal appearance. Yeah, but, you know, he, he also favored Hans Conried, who, you know, did the voice work for, uh, for Captain Hook. Uh, in terms of the way my father behaved, he, above else, considered himself to be an actor, you know, and, uh, an artist with a pencil who was an actor. And so you see little bits of him uh, throughout his body of work. But I'd say the earliest that uh, really stands out is uh, in Pinocchio, particularly when Pinocchio is doing uh, I've Got No Strings to Tie Me Down. And uh, from the moment that the, the little puppet proclaims, you know, I've got no strings, and then takes the tumble down the steps. That's very much the, the way my father would uh, act out a scene or tell a story. That's know. my favorite part of that whole movie. <laughs> it's it's well, what I remember most of, of watching it when I was a child. Well, let me compliment you on your good taste. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's another one uh, that really comes out, and I think that's the, the whole sequence of uh, Bambi and Thumper ice skating because mm. that uh, particularly the way that Bambi uh, fumbles around and tries to keep his balance on the ice there's so much of my father in that in that acting it's, I really enjoy that scene Did your father have a favorite project to have worked on whether that be a character or a specific film? You know he always answered that question with the sort of uh, Oh, it's like your children, you love them all, you know. Uh, but uh, if you pushed him, I think the picture that he liked above all uh, was Bambi. And I think that's because they were able to do something that he felt was completely groundbreaking. And they had, uh, with Walt's support, uh, years and years to work on it until they got it right. And uh, even though the picture, once it went into production, had severe money problems because World War II started and the budget got slashed and footage got slashed and the picture ended up much shorter than it was originally intended to be, he still felt that it had a, a special quality that uh, made it stand out from all the rest. What is it like to know that his work impacted so many people who have you know, grown up on these movies, do you get a lot of feedback on that, especially being that you worked in the studio as well? Well, you know, this is what happens whenever a creative person works on something and then puts it out into the world. And there's been all sorts of conversations about, you know, when you create, that's the only time that you own it. And once you have created it and it goes out into the world, then it's owned by everyone, you know, and... I think there was a, an excitement that he felt when things turned out well, 
you know, because mind you, there are a lot of things that he worked on where uh, till the end of his life, he always wished he could have gotten it back and done it differently or changed some drawings or something like that. But once it went out into the world, then audiences began to own it. And I think he was, uh, you know, both exhilarated and a little bit humbled by the way people would, uh, were affected and, so, and are still affected by things that uh, at one time was just a, a dream of between him and his pencil. When you review a scene years later, you just mentioned the Bellinati spaghetti scene a few minutes ago from Lady and the Tramp. Or, or like for me, I know when I think about the sword and the stone, I always think about the squirrel scene. Your yeah. father was able to capture so much authentic, raw emotion. Did he ever explain his process or maybe his inspiration for being able to accomplish that feat? Well, you know, that mystery was what pulled him into wanting to be in animation in the very first place. And he spent an entire career, what, 43, 44 years uh, pursuing that. And, you know, I think that he was able to get to that high level of achievement more than a lot of people did, but he didn't feel that he was able to do it on a daily basis. He, he just knew that that was the ideal that you always had to shoot for. You know, if, if you try and boil it down, a lot of what he felt made it possible for him to do that ended up being in the books that he and, and Ollie Johnston wrote together and in the lectures that he gave. So he did a very capable job of analyzing and sort of dissecting what it was to create magic. And, uh, you know, this was really what it was like to be with him after I became a filmmaker myself, is that, yes, you enjoyed looking at films together, but you always analyzed them to figure out, well, how do you do that? How do you create that? And my father uh, used to love to watch, uh, particularly actresses uh, that he admired, people like uh, Judy Dench or Helen Mirren, who intrigued him because he could never quite figure out how they did what they do, you know. And, and he wanted to be able to analyze that and figure out how could he do that in drawing you know, those, those subtle, subtle things, because what makes animation work so well, and performance in animation, is being able to master the subtleties of pantomime. You know, that it's not in, it's not in dialogue. It's in body attitudes and changing shapes and what you hold and what you move. And, you know, Ollie Johnston really said it best. You know, he said, don't animate drawings, animate feelings. And that's what both of them ultimately were able to do. And it's funny that you bring that up, especially with how your dad would want to sort of focus in on some of those actresses and, and trying to figure out how they do what they do. You talked about the pantomime because there's a scene in the documentary where he's talking to the family dog and he's commenting about... <laughs> the facial structure, the smile lines, and the perception that you get based off of that and how it makes you look smart. So he must have been doing stuff like this all the time. Always. 
24-7. He was a nonstop people watcher and observer of nature. And, uh, you know, a lot of artists carry a sketchbook around with them. Frank and Ollie never did. Both of them, I think, just had their antenna up and would file it away. And, and Frank had an incredible memory and astounding recall also. And uh, rather than sketch something, he would look at it and remember it. And uh, his ability to analyze how things would look and how they would move was, was so polished that years later when we were looking at some, some live-action reference photostats of Sleeping Beauty, there was a, a dancer who was going to uh, do the little dance that uh, Meriwether was going to do. And then Frank was going to animate that. But the dancer was only from the front. So we asked him, well, how do you know what she's going to look like from behind? And he looked at me and said, well, of course you know what she's going to look like from behind. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to see it. <laughs> That's about as honest an answer as you can get. <laughs> That's great. So shifting focus to the documentary itself and your work, um, what made you want to tell this story? And why did you, this might be you know, part of a, a bigger question, but why did you choose the documentary format instead of maybe writing a book, which they obviously released a couple? Well, I was a, a filmmaker and a freelance filmmaker, and I had just come off uh, doing a number of projects for the National Geographic Society. And I was hunting around for uh, another project to do. And uh, they had just started, they had made the move from PBS to the National Geographic Channel. And so I was thinking, well, what can I pitch them? You know, because I've got a mortgage and I've got to pay the rent. And, you know, what can I pitch them and get a job? And so I pitched them on this idea of, how unusual it was that these two guys lived next door to each other and they had known each other for over 40 years and they were best friends. And, and uh, I got turned down. And so I kept working on the idea and I took it over to the Disney Channel and pitched it to them and I got turned down. And then I thought, well, if, if uh, I can just tweak it a little bit more and uh, maybe get the help of Roy Disney's and Roy reintroduced me to the Disney Channel, and uh, I got turned down. So basically, to answer your question, the, the more I got turned down and the more I kept working on the picture, the more I began to uh, identify what was unique about their relationship and uh, how it really stimulated each of them uh, to do their very, very best work. And... That gave me a theme that was actually much more potent than just sort of a, uh, a human interest story that would have been a short 15-minute piece. I had a story about uh, how do you create and how does friendship boost the output of one person? How can a group effort become greater than the individual input that goes into it? And working on that uh, over a number of years... I continued to pitch it. I continued to try and get independent support for it. And I never could find a home for it uh, where I could do it at Disney. 
Uh, nor could I do it anywhere else because people said, well, you want to use all this Disney material. And, and how can you assure us that you'll have access to it? Well, finally, we did something that my wife and I now have taught documentary courses at the college level. And we say, never use your own money <laughs> when you make a film. So we used our own money. Uh, to to start this film. <laughs> and uh, after we got some of it shot, then we were able to uh, take it back to Disney. And they said, okay, we see what it is you want to do. Make your film. When you finish it, we'll buy it from you. And on that basis, we were able to raise the, the rest of the money, finish the picture, have access to basically the crown jewels. And... Our first public exposure was at the uh, Sundance Film Festival in 1995. So Frank and Ollie, they they were hams. You see it in the documentary, but they were still very humble. So did it take a lot of convincing to get them to star in a documentary about themselves? Absolutely. They did not think that they were interesting enough to sustain an entire documentary. And they kept trying to steer us back to, uh, well, make it more about the movies or make it more about the way we made the movies. And my response was, oh, no, no, we've seen that. That's been done. Uh, that, that, those films, not just film, but those films have been made. And, and actually, if, if I have a, a bone to pick with the, the very nice people at Disney Plus right now, it's that uh, they are publicizing the film as though it's an inside look at how the classic films were made. Yeah, it, it is that. I, I won't deny that. But it's much more a look at the anatomy of a very special friendship. You know, I think what makes the film stand up after all this time is that, to a certain extent, we were able to bottle what made the friendship of Frank and Ollie so very, very special. And, and that's why you still want to see it today. You know, the chemistry that they had. And when those guys come on the screen, you know, you, you fall in love with them. In spite of the fact that this is a documentary, there's still direction needed. What yeah. was it like for you to have to direct your dad and uh, and Ollie as well, two veterans of the business? Well, the fortunate thing was that I had enough experience filmmaking by this time that I was able to turn them into characters. And I was able to turn off the I am his son switch and turn on the I am the filmmaker and I need my character to do X, Y, and Z. Now, having said that, I think that directing them probably was the closest that a filmmaker could have come to actually working with Walt Disney's creative process, because since they learned filmmaking together with Walt, they basically put the very rigorous way of looking at things to test when they were at, they would ask me, they would actually grill me, well, why do you want to do this? Well, what will it do with the, for the picture? Well, how will the audience feel at that point? Well, what do you want the audience to feel at that point? Do you think that will do it? Do you think that's the best way to do it? I mean, these are questions that were being asked when I'm saying, look, I want you to act out this little bit in front of the, the, the white psych and you'll have a shadow. And because for that instant, you turn into Captain Hook or you turn into Thumper or whatever. Anyway, I would get the third degree like that before they would allow me to roll the camera. And... Uh, it's great. It's great because uh, as a consequence, everything is uh, really thought through and nothing's done, uh, nothing's sloppy. 
But that's also why the film feels quite directed. As a friend of mine called it, it's it's cinema fabrique. <laughs> <laughs> do you know how many hours of footage that you ended up with? And do you recall how long it took to edit it down? Well, you know, because we were an independent production and it took so long for us to raise the money, uh, we had a very small shooting ratio. And there wasn't as much footage as you might think there would be for a documentary. You know, we, we were faced with some interesting challenges when we made the picture because normally if you do a film like this, you would expect, it's about animators, you would expect the, the animators to draw. Well, by that time, Ollie had developed uh, palsy. So he had stopped drawing, you know, call it a occupational hazard. But after 40-something years of drawing, he had trouble controlling his hand. So because Ollie had trouble, Frank didn't want to draw. So we knew we weren't going to draw. So we knew it was going to be largely interview-based. And so I thought, well, interview-based with great examples of their work, so let's, we know we'll have the finished film, but let's see if we can also get the pencil tests, you know, which up until that time hadn't been done because pencil tests were considered to be, you know, um, a film without its clothes on. And yet I feel that it is most revealing of the craft of the animator. And then we knew that we would have some interviews, but I preferred to call them uh, monologues because they were my cast. You know, they weren't interviewed. They were people sharing their thoughts, their innermost feelings. And that's why we shot them in two different ways. We shot them in 35 millimeter by themselves and 35 millimeter together. And then when we ran out of money and we moved to Super 16, then we uh, filmed them in a limbo setting. And the limbo setting was where I wanted to have these hopefully revealing insights of uh, how they, as an artist, how they personally felt. And then to round it out, we had uh, what we call the vignettes or, or life around home. And since Kuniko, my, my producer and wife, and I knew them so well, uh, we could pretty much improvise things that, around things that they did. You know, uh, Marie was a great gardener, so get her in the garden. Uh, you know, Jeanette and Frank would work puzzles together, get them doing a puzzle together. Uh, it was things of that nature. And then the final thing we shot was what I call the chorus, uh, which uh, was a group of people who knew them or had worked with them or had been influenced by them. And uh, I only wanted like one of each because quite often when you do a film like this, you pile up all these voices in order to make your main subjects look credible, look important. And I thought I could do that with a minimal number of people rather than the whole card deck. And so I, I had one disciple of Ollie's, one disciple of Frank's, two historians, uh, a couple more people who worked with them, and then their wives, and that's it. That's enough. You're amazing. That was my next question was, how did you choose the interview subjects? So covered that. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier um, that you at one point turned off the sun switch and turned on the director switch, but did you learn anything new about your father having that kind of new relationship with him? 
Yeah, uh, I learned how uh, tenacious and stubborn he could be, you know, because he comes across as a very uh, genial fellow. But when he had an idea, he wouldn't say, well, let's do it this way. He would just continue to talk with you and talk with you and talk with you and, and wouldn't let you make a decision until you would just sort of come around to, well, what if we did it this way? Well, that might, that might be an interesting way to do it, you know, which is what he had been thinking all the time, right? <laughs> so uh, great insight into him in that way. Another thing I learned is that I had always thought in their relationship that Frank was the intellectual one or the, the brainy one and that Ollie was the emotional one. And to a certain extent, in certain situations, that was true. But it was even more true uh, that my father was governed by his emotions and Ollie would tend to have breakthrough ideas, you know, leap forward kinds of ideas. And the brilliance of how they would work together is that Ollie would come up with an idea that was new and fresh. And then it would be Frank who would elaborate on it, you know, and develop it and ask Ollie the right questions to get them to figure a logical way to get to their destination. Frank and Ollie discussed in the film how Walt would scrutinize everything the animators did because he was trying to achieve what he believed was perfection. And when he transitioned to parks and television, they were sort of left to do their own thing. As artists, do you feel that they could get more creative without him over their shoulder in spite of the fact that he was such a driving force in the studio? Oh, that's a good question and a really tough one. I think every capable artist, if they're honest, will admit to the value of a good editor. And uh, Walt, uh, even when he was just dropping in from time to time instead of being there hour by hour, uh, was a terrific editor and knew story better than anybody in the studio. Uh, on the flip side of that, all these guys, all the nine old men in the 1950s and 60s, they had been doing this for 20, 30 years by now and were at the height of their powers. And as you had Walt's projects spread out, he began to siphon some of the nine old men away from animation. I mean, Ward Kimball wasn't animating regularly anymore. Mark Davis wasn't animating anymore. He had bumped Les Clark into directing. And before he passed away, John Lounsbury was directing too. And, and Eric Larson, uh, of course, when they decided to gear back up and train a new generation of animators, he got siphoned away to do training. So you had fewer and fewer in the 50s and 60s and 70s, he had fewer and fewer than idle men working. And what they got to do, basically, was mini-movies. They all got to do big extended sequences, and I think they liked that. But I also think that each of them might admit that if they had a Walt dropping in from time to time and giving a nudge this way or, or that way, that it sure would have been helpful. Do you feel that the end result of your film is what you set out to do? I mean, a documentary can change in so many ways just in the editing process. And, you know, you might tap into something that you didn't even realize that you had. So how do you uh, how do you feel about 
your end result? Well, the fact that people still want to watch it 25 years after it debuted, I'll take as an answer to whether or not it's standing the test of time. When I finished it, I did feel that I had made the film that I wanted to make. Uh, and, you know, in, in a career, there's only a few times that you can really say that. And there are all sorts of obstacles that we had to overcome in terms of how to get to our goal. I mean, there were plenty of hurdles that were thrown in the way. I mean, it took us seven years to make the film. Wow. And, and of those seven, four, five were spent just getting permissions and getting the money to do it. And then uh, when we shot, you know, we uh, did our shooting and then we didn't have enough to edit. So we had to, you know, transfer everything and then stick it in storage. And then when we finally got our showreel put together, well, then it took us another six months of editing which is a, a fairly tight schedule for that type of film. But again, it's because I had almost made the film on paper before we got to make it for real. So one of the things that we love most about Disney Plus is access to rare films like Waking Sleeping Beauty, like your documentary. When they announced the streaming service, did they approach you about it? Did you go to them and you mentioned before we started recording that they do they, they did help you along the way. So w was that their call? It, it was their call to decide to put it on the streaming service. And the, the great thing, well, Frank and Ollie was the first feature documentary uh, made by somebody outside the studio. And then it was followed by Leslie Iwerks doing uh, The Hand Behind the Mouse about her grandfather of Iwerks. And then a few years after that, uh, you had Don Hahn do Waking Sleeping Beauty and uh, Richard and, and Robert Sherman's sons uh, doing The Boys. And I think that fortunately we had provided enough momentum by that time that management at Disney has seen that there are great stories to be told and uh, great stories to be shown on the different Disney platforms. So um, I'm just tickled like anything that uh, both uh, Walt and uh, El Grupo and Frank and Ollie are on Disney Plus. Walt and El Grupo is coming on June 9th, by the way. Yes, Excellent. that is coming up. No, it's it's one of, it, it's our favorite thing about Disney Plus is getting to see things like this because we had heard about Frank and Ollie but we just we just didn't know where to find it so when we finally November 12th we, we finally had our access so we were really excited that was one of the first <laughs> things that we watched when we got it well I hope it held up for you <laughs> oh we love it we love yeah. it are you going to do uh, more documentaries or anything else for Disney Plus uh, I don't know yet you know I thought that I was getting close to hanging up the the, the old camera but never say never, because there's two new pictures that I've started working on. And uh, I hope in another year or two, you know, I might be able to talk with you about them. So. Well, you're invited back anytime. You don't even have to ask. You could just like, pop in and just let us know when, you're, when you want to come back. Cool. Um, so let me ask you this. How would Frank and Ollie feel? about the departure of that traditional hand-drawn animation in favor of this computer animation, because they did get to see a good deal of it. You know, that's a, a good question and a very 
multi-layered question that's hard to answer without talking your ear off. But let me try and unpack it. Frank was uh, involved from the very beginning of uh, computer animation, and he was a consultant uh, for Apple and a mentor for John Lasseter, and uh, he embraced the whole idea of what uh, computers could do in animation. And when I asked him why, he said, well, this is what Walt would be doing, you know. When you talk with Ollie about it in the same time frame, he was always bothered by what he felt the limitations of computer animation were, both uh, at the time that both of them were alive, and I think he'd feel the same thing today, because he, he felt that it was a step removed from uh, the soul of the artist. And uh, I think what he would say today is, yeah, um, he always felt that he did his best work when he could take his character off model, exaggerate it ever so briefly that that's not the way it was designed, but that was the way he was able to cheat the eyes to the same side of the face so they looked better. If you work with a rig in computer animation, you're basically, you've created a, a very sophisticated puppet and you're, you're manipulating the puppet. And I think that Ollie felt that that was one step removed from where he wanted to be. And the criticism that both of them had, they felt that animation should do things that only the animation, animated medium can do. And they felt that a new generation of filmmakers was being overly influenced by live action because a lot of the things that you can now do in animation were like live action. And they thought it was unfortunate to take animation more in that direction instead of find stories and character relationships that you could only do in animation. But I think they would be very, very happy that the work they did and their legacy that they have has spurred animation. So we no longer think of it as uh, something that only took place during the, their golden age, but it's a fixture of filmmaking today, you know, and I think that that would please them very, very much. You talked about their legacy and the lasting impact that it's had, and obviously their legacy is in that golden age of the Disney animated classics, and, and it's a tradition that Disney does continue today, but how do you think they would feel about so many of these animated classics getting remade into live-action films? Because a lot of the films, and I know that we have some mixed reviews on some of them. I mean, it's really why we started this podcast. Um, <laughs> but how, how do you think they would react to some of the films that are getting put to live-action? Well, yeah. They might say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It's a great you know, answer. They also might, as artists, they might chafe a little bit, saying, well, gee, why can't you come up with your own idea? And then I think, as realists, they would say, well, what businessman would pass up the opportunity? You know, here you've got stories that have been known for generations, and if you put them into a, a new format, 
you will will appeal to multiple generations. So I think from a business standpoint, it's very hard not to do it. So this film, this documentary that you made, it's very much a slice of life piece because we do get to see your dad and Ollie in their day to day and what it was sort of like for them spending time living next door to each other. But you had said it before, it was sort of your inspiration for, as you said a little while ago, the quote unquote unusual relationship that they had. Mm. Mm. So for you, having grown up with them, having had the privilege of working with them at the studio, in your opinion, in in your words, other than what we've seen on the in the film, because the film does do a great job in accomplishing this, but I have to ask, what do you think it was that made that relationship so special, or even so, to take your term, unusual? Uh, mutual respect. They had a mutual respect for each other that was not clouded by personal ego. And they each were able to see one another's strengths and accommodate each other's flaws and shortcomings. And not just for one picture, uh, not just for a decade, but uh, these guys met each other when they were 19 years old at college. And my father passed away at age 92. And between 19 and 92, those two guys were either next door neighbors or shared an apartment or carpooled together all those years and worked on films together and then wrote books together. And it's just, well, it's one in a million but because it's one in a million, it's also an example for all of us. Truly, we we love the documentary, and it's just such an amazing look at their friendship. It it really is such a beautiful relationship, and it comes through the film. And you know, it was it was just great to talk to you about it and your experience working on it. Well, thank you. I mean, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to make a film like that, obviously, but. Uh, I was given the gift of, of those parents and, uh, and Ollie and Marie. And uh, I guess you could say that if there's a picture you're born to make, this was it. Ted Thomas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your stories. And thank you so much for this film because I think that as time goes on, I think that this Disney community, and, and we know from being fortunate enough to sit here and do this every week, this Disney community, they embrace so much of the history of this company. And I think that there were a lot of people that embraced what Ali and what your dad did for all of us. And I think that that's one of the great things about Disney Plus is now it's at everybody's fingertips and especially a film like this. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your story. Thank you for the film. So glad I could do it. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.